very warm welcome. Good evening, my dear people, to our uh, Wednesday evening talk. Let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and thou of our death. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, for this evening's talk, and continuing on to next week with part two, we're going to have a look at Obendi the 16th in the liturgy, or to be more precise, Obendi the 16th and his theology um, of the liturgy. Um, it's not to say that Obendi's theology of the liturgy is the only theology of the liturgy, but it remains an important subject and, and, and quite an important contribution towards the study of the liturgy, you know, especially maybe in the last 30 years or so. Um, for Benedict, of course, was a theologian before his papacy, and uh, his theological insights continue to be of some interest today and also relevance to the to the future of how we understand the liturgy, understand inverted commas, the worship of Almighty God. And as I said his writings, um his writings of liturgy span well, his major writings span the last thirty years and probably a bit longer. Uh, especially in the English-speaking world, um, since the, the publication of one of his books, The Feast of Faith. I remember coming across this book when I was an undergraduate, and that was, if you like, anyway, close to, if you like, my um, introduction, my introduction to uh, the theology of the liturgy written by then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. I hadn't read anything before from Joseph Ratzinger, so it was an eye-opener for me. Um, so that was quite some time ago. And uh, about the year 2000, if my memory serves me correctly, we had the English translation of this important book. Uh, this is my copy, The Spirit of the Liturgy. And I'll explain shortly why this is a really important book. But before we get into all of this, I just want to say a few words about Pope Benedict's life. Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Um, yeah, it's a life of many notable achievements. And uh, he was born on the sixteenth of April. In 1927, in this house, Markertl am Inn, Bavaria, in Germany, began his studies during the very difficult time of the Second World War. And uh, 
Then he went to Freising for the High School of Philosophy and Theology and to the University of Munich from 1946 to 1951. And he was ordained actually in 1951 on the 29th of June. He obtained his doctorate in 1953 and then he was later qualified to teach at university. So he spent most of his life as a theologian writing numerous books, papers and articles and he served as a professor of theology at the University of Freiburg, uh, Freising, sorry, Freising, Bonn and Münster, Tübingen and Regensburg. And he participated as a peritus, as an expert, as an advisor to Cardinal Frings at the Second Vatican Council, that's from 1962 to 1965. In 1977, Joseph Ratzinger was appointed Archbishop of Munich. In the same year, he was created a Cardinal by Pope Paul VI. 1981, St. John Paul II appointed him as Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is to... Um, promote the faith and also to defend the faith and then you can see he held the post until 2005 despite requesting I think on one occasion to retire uh, 2005 he was elected as the Pope to the name of Benedict and he resigned the papacy in 2013 Although Bendy is no longer Pope, as I said, there's still a great interest in his theology and what he tried to achieve in the field of literature and what he's written in the field of literature is still of some importance. And that's not only, I do mean only, the, you know, his magisterium. Because what popes have taught in line with tradition concerning faith and, and liturgical practice uh, is very important. But I'm looking now at, at Benedict as a theologian, as Joseph Ratzinger, because um, he's a truly gifted theologian in his own right. In fact, one of the, probably one of the most cleverest men to occupy the, the Sea of Peter, as someone has pointed that out. And, uh, of course, he expressed negative views about certain aspects of contemporary liturgical practice and he suggested remedies for this in his writings. Of course, that drew a lot of criticism. Uh, but he was well able to defend himself. So an inescapable feature of Benedict's life as a theologian is his theological writings. It's not, it's not the only aspect of theology that Benedict is interested in. For example, he wrote a very influential book on eschatology, that's the last times, if you like, the eschaton. He's written about the theory of history, connection with the, if you like, the theology of St. Bonaventure, that great Franciscan saint, so on and so forth. Um, but it's interesting to note that in his pontificate, of course, that the liturgy was also top of his priorities. Remember the expression, someone, some blog or other, uses save the liturgy, save the church. Well, in many ways, um, well, this is understandable because the liturgy is at the 
summit of the church's activity, the source of the summit of the church's activity. That's a quotation from the document of the Second Vatican Council on the liturgy. A true that is, and Benedict, therefore, um, during his pontificate, turned his attention to the liturgy, with, for example, the post synodo exhortation Sacramentum Caritatis, the Sacrament of Charity of Love. He spoke about the Holy Eucharist, about liturgy. And uh, we can see there an influence of his theology. Also, Benedict, sort of, they must have read the papal cupboards in the papal sacristy at uh, Peter's and elsewhere because various things began to be used again that hadn't been seen for a very long time, writers and, and staffs and what have you. There's a papal fallon, a special sort of garb that, that goes over the, the chasuble worn by the Pope. And the traditional, what we call traditional Roman vestments, vestments of the Roman rite, occasionally prevent uh, it would wear them appropriately. So liturgy was really at the centre of his papacy. And you had what was called the Benedictine arrangement. Those churches were, which had uh, another altar in front of the high altar, for example, started to put crucifix in the centre and other candles. Of course, this predates Pope Benedict XVI. Um, and you can see it in some abbeys on the continent, well before this time. But this was to try and, and to place the Lord at the centre of the celebration of the sacred liturgy. And that's a very important thing for um, Pope Benedict. So Benedict's writings have been influential, and his ideas will, I think, for many years to come, be influential. So I want to give an overview of uh, Pope Benedict's theology of the liturgy. I don't want to really get bogged down in a lot of the polemics and the discussions, which we could certainly have, about how liturgy has um, been reformed or deformed, if you like, in the last uh, 50 years. That, that's an important discussion. But I want to look basically at, at what is the liturgy according to the mind of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. What is the liturgy about? Where does it come from? And um, what, what is it basically? And in particular, if we're looking at the liturgy, I'm going to use this book I showed you, The Spirit of the Liturgy. So basically we're taking it, it's like a walk through the spirit of the liturgy. And, uh, and this sort of discussion is aided by recourse to other writings, like when I, show, I showed you the Advocacy of Faith. And just to give you some idea of his liturgical writings, um, this is the Opera Omnia, I think it might still be in progress, I'm not sure, uh, of Bobendi's writings. And this is one of the volume 11, Concerns the Liturgy, and this is the English translation. I no longer have the, the German uh, version, but so obviously I've got the, 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 and the first book, the first chapter, rather, if you like, of this collection 
I'll bend its liturgical writings uh, is actually it consists of a reprint of the spirit of the liturgy and uh, th this is well this is quite providential in a sense because um, that book gives a good summary really and in a nutshell what Benedict believes the liturgy to be a summary of his theology of the liturgy So I'm trying to explain as simply as I can, because it is a, Benedict reads very well, his writings read quite well, I must say, and even in the translation, um, there were some very good translators who, who is, you know, Ignatius Press who publishes books in, in English. So we're going to look at uh, Benedict and the liturgy. Uh, in according to broad themes and, and um, I will try and make it as clear as possible because it is quite complicated although his his uh, writings read very very well uh, especially in, well, in the translations of very delicious uh, present who publishes works of very good uh, translators um, it, it can be maybe quite complicated so I'll try and make it uh, explain it as simple as possible because it's because I'm obviously addressing a wide uh, wider audience, and if you wanted to read further, and of course I said I want to look at theology of literature, not looking at other issues connected with the literature book Benedict, like some of the typical. Um, I wrote this little book about eight nine years ago, um, and uh, the first chapter contains a synopsis, if you like, of. Um, the theology of literature according to Pope Benedict. The book is called Pope Benedict the Sixteenth and the Literature. That's what that's helpful. Um, so let's begin. Why did Pope Benedict write this book, The Spirit of the Literature? Well, one of the first books he read as a theology student was written by this man, this priest, um, Romano Guardini, who died in 1968, he wrote a book, The Liturgy, The Spirit of the Liturgy, and he wanted people to be more aware of what the liturgy was. You probably are aware of the of something about the liturgical movement. It was a movement to try and get people interested in praying the Mass. Of having missiles, uh, of uniting their prayers to that of the the church, of um, uh, living the liturgy, participating in the liturgy through the actual texts uh, of of the liturgy, and of course Pope Pius the Twelfth, um, for most of the time at least. Um, was able to control the sort of wackier influences of the liturgical. Uh, movement, but it, it wasn't all bad. I think that's that's an important point to make. And Ratzinger writes that um, the liturgical movement in Germany was inaugurated by Guardini's book, and he said it helped us to rediscover the liturgy in all its beauty, its hidden wealth, 
and time transcending grandeur, uh, to see it as the animating centre of the church, the very uh, centre of Christian life. And um, so the liturgical movement you know, played an important part in the, if you like, the formation, the liturgical formation of uh, Joseph Ratzinger. And he says that, okay, to some extent, the fresco of the liturgy was unveiled, revealed by the liturgical movement. And he claims in a definitive way by the Second Vatican Council. Uh, to some extent, that's true. And you look at, the, of course, the document on the liturgy in the Second Vatican Council doesn't give every aspect of the history of the liturgy, the theology of the liturgy in its document, but it gives some broad outlines which are important. Um, but it says, while the fresco was uncovered, Benedict says, uh, all was not well with the liturgy. And he said that after the Second Vatican Council, the fresco has been endangered by climactic conditions, as well by various restorations and reconstructions. It is threatened with destruction if the necessary steps are not taken, he says, to stop these damaging influences. There's another liturgist, uh, Louis Boyer, of the French Oratory, and he was active actually in the um, concilium that devised the, the new liturgy, and actually his memoirs is quite critical of, of uh, Archbishop Annibale Bonini, who was the secretary of the, of the, of the concilium. But, it, but it's interesting to note that he wrote a book, a little thin book, um, called, you know, The Liturgy Revived, and it was a commentary on the Vatican II constitution on the liturgy, and then later he was very disappointed with how things turned out, and he wrote a book called The Decomposition of Catholicism. I have both books, actually. Um, so um, what he's saying about, what Pope Benedict's saying in his book, the spirit of the liturgy about problems after the council have been echoed by uh, others in the church. Um, and it, it, I think to some extent the dissatisfaction that, that Ratzinger had with the, the liturgy, with its with fundamental aspects of its construction, implementation, interpretation after the council, as if it were a significant break from the liturgy of the past and um, worse from the church of the past um, was the question of whether there was genuine organic development of the liturgy. Uh, it's albeit, you know, it's metaphorically expressed that it was uh, employed by key persons throughout um, the liturgical movement and in Sacrosanctum Concilium talked about legitimate progress, careful investigation the retention of sound tradition and so forth. And various scholars like um, Alcuin Reed, Dom Alcuin Reed, who has written a book on the Organic Development Liturgy, has tried to show how liturgy is something which develops. It grows, but it remains true to its principles and true to um, what it is. It's a gradual growth, but remaining the same in a sense. Um, so I really want to read his book, 
when they're getting a bit of the literature to, to understand it. But anyway, so Joseph Ratzinger, he actually he believes in some form of development of the liturgy, but in continuity with the past. Of course, we can debate whether um, that was essential or whether the liturgical movement had been hijacked, if you like. It started out to, to encourage people to participate in liturgy, to the text, to have an understanding of the sacred liturgy, and then uh, there were demands to change the liturgy by liturgists. So there are things one could discuss, I'm sure. But anyway, this notion of organic development of the liturgy as, a, as opposed to a break with the liturgical past of the church. Um, to some extent, the, the writings of, as I can read there, the writings of John Henry, Cardinal Newman, St. John Henry Newman, and his notion of the development of doctrine. The doctrine remains the same, but of course, in certain, you know, certain points, uh, maybe on the Mass, certain points about the, the nature of the Mass might be elucidated, or a little tinge of colour is added to something, but it brings out and it shows what is there all the time, that deposit of faith passed down, given by our blessed Lord, taught by our Lord, passed down by the Apostles. Um, so that had an influence, uh, John Henry's notion of the development of Dorsian had an influence on Cardinal Ratzinger's thinking. And he wrote in a preface um, uh, to a study, um, or rather, yeah, it's a study by Klaus Gamba, a famous liturgist who died before really, uh, you know, the, the sort of reaction to what was going on in the church and liturgy sort of took off. Um, and, and you can read the, actually the whole of that preface that Ratzinger wrote to Gamba's sort of collection of, of papers in his, his book, his volume here on, um, the, on the liturgy, theology of liturgy. And he said that what Ratzinger said, what happened after the council was something else entirely. In place of liturgy as the fruit of development came fabricated liturgy. We abandoned the organic living process of growth and development over the centuries. So his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, written to assist with a renewal of the understanding of what the liturgy is in a way which corresponds with Guardini's earlier book of the same title, uh, but with a contemporary situation uh, in mind. Um, but it's also interesting, Joseph Ratzinger, although he was a supporter of the older liturgical movement, um, he became aware much later, as he says himself, of the flaws in the liturgical movement. And in his autobiography, um, he writes that you know he was an advisor to Cardinal Things uh, at, the, at the council. And he made these, these comments. Um, at the beginning of the council, says Ratzinger, I saw that the draft of the constitution and the liturgy, which incorporated all the essential elements of the liturgical movement, was a marvellous point of departure for the assembly of the whole church. And I advised Cardinal Frings in this sense. I was not able to foresee that the negative sides of the liturgical movement 
would afterwards re-emerge with redoubled strength, almost to the point of pushing the liturgy towards its own self-destruction. Anyway, that's a bit of the background um, to why he wrote the Book of Spirit of Liturgy, why he, he wanted to, to bring to a wider audience uh, sort of a renewed and um, notion of what liturgy is and based on tradition and the notion that the liturgy is something which developed in the centuries, but there's a certain constant which remains. So firstly, um, what is the essence of the liturgy? What is liturgy? And uh, just a right singer, it's a question that the answer of which contains many interwoven components. But it suggests by once you make a start with the uh, book of Exodus, that's Moses crossing through the, the Red Sea. And he said that the people of Israel wanted to be free from Egypt, wanted to leave Egypt. And the reason that was given was, it's in Exodus, that they may serve me, that is God, in the wilderness in order to worship. So they, they were to be free, to go to the promised land, to be free in order to worship. And worship is something which, it's not something that, that we, the man, can decide ourselves how to worship God. It's something which God himself actually regulates. He determines um, ceremonies, prayers, what is to be used. Um, and it's not, it, of course, man within him has this, uh, even though it might be hidden, there's this sort of notion of, of God, of a divinity, a divine being, or something greater than himself. But we need, that's why we need revelation to correct errors and what have you. And God revealed himself to his people, the people of Israel, and wanted to guide and show them how they were to worship. So Exodus, this freedom, this, this, this sort of coming out of slavery, the slavery of Egypt, um, this is paralleled with like our, the resurrection in the New Testament. I'll spin a bit about that uh, later on. So cult and worship is something which is willed by God and which God, if you like, lays down. How is to be worshipped uh, by liturgy, uh, by people coming together. Um, now, according to the Cardinal, there's a relationship between worship, law and ethics that um, how we worship it's something which affects our real life, it's something which is at the centre of, of our lives, and it's something which informs our lives. Of course, worship is primarily uh, honouring and adoring Almighty God, and it's from that because we obtain grace, and our relationship with God deepens uh, with our Lord and Saviour. Um, we we, we uh, acknowledge God as our Creator, but um, it means that, as well, that, that it gives our lives a perspective how we should live our lives. We should worship God according to what God our days, but also we should uh, live our life uh, in accordance with God's laws and His commandments. Um, God knows how we tick. And uh, it's not a matter of, uh, the rat saying says, doing what we please, a feast 
of self-affirmation. Liturgy is not all about me. It's not about gazing at the priest. It's about gazing at the mercy of God. It's prayer. It's not self-seeking worship. It's God-seeking. It seeks God. We seek not the golden calf like the Israelites, but we seek for our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the true God, Father's Son, and Holy Spirit. And that singer then goes on to talk about liturgy as a cosmic thing, that something that has a cosmic element and a historical element. And some theologians think it's either cosmic or historical, but he says actually, while that pain is not unfounded in modern theology, it, it, it's, it says it's false when it leads to an exclusive opposition. My cosmic, you mean the universe, particularly as a well-ordered whole. And history is understood in the sense of God revealing himself in redemption. Uh, God reveals in history, of course, how we are to worship him, how we to acknowledge him. Um, and the, the whole story of creation is bound up with the Sabbath, with, with, with the, the seventh day, progress of the seventh day. And it's certainly bound up with the Sabbath. Um, there's, 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 there's no doubt about that. That that particular day was to be free for worship of God in particular. We worship God every day of our lives. Please God, we love God. We, those of us who try to get to Mass, it's difficult at this present time. Um, the sacraments too. Um, but this is important, the worship of God uh, and how we order our lives uh, and that the goal of all worship, um, the goal of creation uh, is the worship of God. Um, and man, man is to respond to God in love. And loving God means worshiping Him. Says that singer. And so, in the in the week, if you like, we have this particular day, the Sabbath, the uh, the Lord's Day, the day we keep the resurrection. Because Sabbath was moved to to the Sunday, the Lord's Day. So there must be a space in our lives uh, for this worship of God, acknowledgement of God uh, as our creator. So that's this is the time um, of Genesis. Um, and then that thing returns again to the question of what is worship. He says that sacrifice is something at the heart of all religions of worship uh, in all religions. This is certainly true of course in Judaism. Um, where there were various sacrifices, various sacrifices in the temple, um, various prophets and individuals like Abraham were told to build an erect an altar and offer a sacrifice. That, uh, the, the, the Holocaust, if you like, the, the burnt offering, the lamb, the altar of, of, of sacrifice of Holocaust. And um, but these sacrifices, these, these signs, which were actually it's a sign of true surrender to God, uh, as I said, a union of man with, uh, and creation with God. Um, but unfortunately, with the fall of man, these sacrifices, they weren't ultimately enough. And it's only 
um, you know, redemption now needs the Redeemer, so it's with the coming of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of love on the cross, perfect sacrifice. And it says the form of the cross is of the love that is dying, that in dying makes a gift of himself. So this, in a sense, is restoration, if you like, of positive restoration of humanity to his uh, true identity and his true relationship with God. Um, according to that saying, Christian worship is a participation in the Pasch of Christ, from divine to human, from death to life, to the unity of God with man. And in Christ of Jesus, we're lifted by, you know, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself, as our Lord said in uh, St. John's Gospel. Um, So the sacrifice of Christ is, is the, the perfect sacrifice, the gift uh, of the, the Son of God offering um, an atonement for sins, for our salvation, um, to open the gates of heaven. Now there's been some talk, of course, I, I mentioned in previous talks about um, that worship is of the other Christians, well, the art of the other Christians is connected with the sort of artworks that we find uh, in the synagogue. So, and that there was um, a sort of uh, the artwork in the synagogue was influenced by the culture of the day, the Greco Romano culture. That's uh, the adoration of the Lamb. This is what I want to show you. Actually, this is this is part of Alexandria, which was, there was a Jewish community there, and they were influenced by Greek sort of ideas. And one of the ideas actually was worship of God, spiritual worship, true worship, and we find that important concept of spiritual worship taken up by Saint Paul, and he wanted to prove it. I suppose. In some is issue corrective, and how do you understand the spiritual worship, the worship of God? Um, and he wrote, St. Paul wrote in the letter of the Romans, chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. And sacrifice... Um, is part of this, and it's, if you like, the sacrifice of the Logos. Logos is Greek word, which means what? And of course, we know that the word became flesh. Jesus Christ became flesh. So we're talking here about the sacrifice of Calvary and all our prayers. And then this, this prayer, united with God, and the Logos, the word, which features, of course, in the prologue of St. John's Gospel, Gives the very meaning of things, that, that, that our whole meaning, the universe, creation, ourselves, has meaning, given meaning in Jesus Christ and in God. So, Logos, the sacrifice of, of the Logos, becomes a full reality only with the incarnation of the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, suppose 
St. Paul, and you can see it with the, the Greek fathers, that, that they saw that some of the value, to some extent, of Greek ideas of philosophy, and thinking about the world and the nature of the world, and creation and everything else. Um, they saw that this, the ideas there pointed towards Christianity. Of course, there's ultimately no um, contradiction between faith and reason. And you can read that marvelous, uh, I think it's a cyclical, or I right, a cyclical of Pope John Paul II, a few days at that, so faith and reason, and that explains that quite well. So the coming of our Lord, that brought uh, what's called reasonable service to, of God, which someone says the new covenant. So the old covenant points towards the new covenant. Um, the Lamb of God. Yeah, the Lamb of God. Yeah, that is this uh, famous altarpiece in Kent Cathedral. Um, we have the Lamb of God, uh, the adoration of the Lamb, uh, the, 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 like the, the true sacrifice which was foreshadowed by the Old Testament sacrifices. Yes, the, the, the sacrifice of the Lamb in the Temple. And then we go to Exodus and see the sacrifice, well, yes, the first Passover, sacrifice of the Lamb, and the, the doors are dug with the blood of the Lamb. And the age of death threw over the, the house of the Israelites. So it's all points to and the shadows of the Old Testament become reality uh, in the New Testament. This is not a great idea um, of the Church Fathers. Well, they point this out, and it's already present, you know, for example, in the writings of St. Paul. So from old worship, we come to the new worship, as you see, the worship of the Lamb, of the, the perfect sacrifice. Sacrifice of love, um, the Lamb of God, Christ Himself. And this um, liturgy which we have on earth is mirrored, of course, in heaven. And this is what we see here in uh, the Apocalypse of St. John, the adoration of the Lamb. So I mentioned that the liturgy is cosmic. The rest of the universe. Um, so there's a relationship, as Ratzinger then explains, about uh, the relationship of the liturgy to time and space. We have a nice illustration of the Holy Mass. We have the whole we have God at the top and the whole company of heaven. Uh, the church triumphant and then the church militant, that's ourselves on earth, and then the church suffering uh, in purgatory. And there we have space. Um, cosmic means it's something which embraces the universe, but also heaven and earth. Which is cosmic, it embraces heaven and earth. And the effects purgatory too, doesn't it? That's why Mass has said, the holy souls in purgatory, that they may soon uh, reach the joys of the beatific vision in heaven. Um, so liturgy is connected to heaven, it's connected to the earth, and uh, to purgatory. And also, um, liturgy is connected to, um, well, there's a certain, what we call, eschatological thought. That's a big word, isn't it? 
Eschaton, remember, we talk, in traditional Catholic theology, it refers to the last times. It also refers, of course, to the, yes, the second coming of our Lord, our Lord's coming of judgment. So liturgy it, it, it refers to the past, for example, the preservation of our Lord, the sacrifice of our Lord. Present, the sacrifice is brought on the altar after the, the, the words, this is my body, this is my blood. Christ offering his one perfect sacrifice, which in Calvary was bloody, was done in a bloody manner, and in the altar is done in a, in a bloody manner, but in the altar is an unbloody manner. Uh, on the altar is a sacrifice of love, it is Christ who is also his glorious, and no longer uh, suffering. So that sacrifice from the past, it becomes present. It, on our altars, and also uh, remember uh, in the canon of the Mass after the consecration of the, the precious blood, uh, the priest recalls the the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord. So it, it, it commemorates also these great mysteries of our salvation and um, the mysteries of salvation is uh, represented. Um, to God well, on the altar in a very real sense as, as a sacrifice um, of Calvary and also points to future so that's past that's the present and then we're looking towards the future uh, which is the eschaton the last times the final judgment so there's always a looking forward to um, to the, the the judgment because we're not there yet we don't it's not happened yet the, the, the last judgment so that's something that's in the future so it's a sort of cosmic reality of uh, the liturgy um, just going to move on now from that uh, to church buildings and sacred spaces and um, so we have basically the spirit of the, the liturgy there um, and then there are other aspects of liturgy. The liturgy of course is something which contains if you like a theology um, of symbols uh, which point to from the image it points to a reality like a candle um, the light of the candle it might give light but also it, it points towards Jesus Christ the light of Christ that shines in the darkness that illuminates the darkness that dispels the darkness and leads us into the, the mystery of the light of himself um, and it's interesting actually I just have a footnote here if you don't mind the footnote that uh, that thing it says that when he's talking about the cosmic nature of the liturgy that uh, he says it's more than a meal and the mass isn't um, it isn't if you don't mind me saying going to a party or anything I won't say the mass described as a, you know, like a party but I'm afraid it's not a party it's the sacrifice of Christ and Calvary represented on the altar. 
it is an aspect of of meal, the sense of the sacred banquet, the reception of of Holy Communion, but he says it's more than the meal. And you think about how deeply we go into the mysteries um, of our salvation in the Holy Mass, which we have there, the the three dimensions of the issue, past, present and future. Well, how we express that externally, of course, we are human beings, and I'll speak a bit more in part two, I speak about the importance of signs and symbols, why are these things important, why do we use things during the liturgy? Um, and also where we hold the, the liturgy where the Mass is offered and the Divine Office celebrated, especially in communities. So sacred spaces and churches are particularly important. And you turned, remember we saw a picture of Louis Boyer. Well, Louis Boyer also made a contribution to the, our understanding of sacred spaces and churches. The Christian church building um, Domus Ecclesiae, related to Ecclesia, as they, so the assembly of the people of God for worship and convocation, that's synagogue, Ecclesia, they're sort of the same words. And Boyer showed, this is actually the, as uh, a synagogue, like a Capernaum, and Boyer showed that the Christian house of God, that there's, that there's continuity between the Ecclesia and, and the church, the actual building the church with the, the synagogue, but it acquires a new Christian newness, he says, without any dramatic break, but it's through communion with Jesus Christ. And as he says without any dramatic break, I hope you notice. Um, but but um, Ratzinger, actually, um, he argues earlier in his book, that, okay, there is a relationship between synagogue worship and, um, you know, like the Mass, to, that, we, that certain things were borrowed and adapted, but they were adapted. Uh, you know, the reading of the Scriptures, the explanation of the Scriptures that we call the sermon today. Um, the Fathers knew, knew them as long homilies. Um, so there's that connection with Jewish worship, but Boya said you know, that there is a connection, but... Um, we, people have sometimes tried, especially certain individuals have tried to push the point that actually the synagogue form of worship, that is really where it all begins in Christian worship, but there's, there's quite a number of differences. Um, and some people have tried to sort of lessen the, um, the sacrament, the sacrificial nature of the Mass and the liturgy by sort of saying that, well, in the synagogue there wasn't a sacrifice. The only sacrifice was in the Temple of Jerusalem. Of course, the Temple was destroyed. Um, but in actual fact, there were references to, to the Temple and sacrifice in the synagogue, um, as, a, as a matter of fact. Um, the synagogue, of course, faced towards the, they're supposed to face in the direction of the temple. So that notion of sacrifice to God um, is still very much present. Um, and actually, this here, this picture here, this is from the Greek island of Delos. It's a synagogue. It's the seat of Moses, the shrine of the Torah 
Uh, well, these two things are interesting. She's doing more than sharing the Torah. She, the two focal points actually in the synagogue. This is the seat of Moses from uh, this very early, if not one of the, the earliest, if not one of the earliest synagogues that we remains for. It dates from the second half of the second century um, BC. It's a seat where the rabbi sits and he presents the word of God and represents Sinai and the shrine of the Torah. That's another, that's another view of the, the seat of the rabbi. But the, the, um, so that's, that's from Gulash uh, Europa, Europos. Um, but this one, yes, that's a Torah shrine, and that's from the Great Synagogue in Budapest. And as carefully as when you, when you see these beautiful, beautiful images, um, you think, don't you, of the tabernacle in the church, uh, which contains the Holy of Holies, Jesus Christ himself, God himself. And uh, this, actually, the Torah shrine represents the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and it says it's the, it's the only object allowed in the Holy of the Holies of the Temple, the Ark of the Covenant. So, of course, it, got, it was lost. But here, this shrine contains the Torah, the living word of God. It's treated with great sight, great reverence by, by the Jews. So, the Ark points to the fact, this points to the fact that the, these are the synagogue, a big synagogue actually, they're not independent from each other. Um, they pointed towards the ark, they, pointed, they orientated, in other words, towards Jerusalem, to the sacrifice in the, in the old temple, to the Holy of Holies. So the service of the liturgy of the word of the synagogue that was um, carried on in the synagogue is connected to the sacrificial liturgy um, of the temple. And there's various ritualistic prayers when the, the, um, the scrolls of the scripture are unrolled, which are connected with the sacrificial actions of the temple. Um, so we see, yes, that the similarities, but there are also differences and uh, with Christian worship and that's uh, old St. Peter's church. That's what St. Peter's Basilica in Rome used to look like. Uh, if it was rebuilt at the, the, the time of the Renaissance and the Counter Reformation, into the, the beautiful facility we have today. But um, Ratzinger says that um, Christian worship, which, which took some elements from the synagogue worship, uh, differed in, in three major ways. The ten, uh, firstly, um, the worship in Christian church faces east, uh, not towards the old temple, not the destroyed temple. Christ has said, and because the sun, in a sense, people have seen the sun representing Christ. This is a figurative, figurative thing um, that we face east because Christ will return uh, in the east. So the orientation of prayer is towards the east, is towards Jesus Christ. 
um, which we find in the symbol of the rising sun, which rises, of course, uh, in the east. Um, so that's the first major difference with synagogue worship. Second difference is we actually have in the Christian church, we have an altar, which uh, that singer says quite beautifully that it replaces the old Christian altar, replaces the temple, the old temple, uh, which was destroyed in Jerusalem because the true sacrifice, the one sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Christ, is represented on our altars. So that's the other difference. Um, the altar looks towards the, the east, uh, as I said, and forms part of it. What the temple had in the past foreshadowed, what the temple showed, what, what it pointed towards is now present in a new way, the Christian altar. The third innovation is that while the shrine of the world remains, even in its position in the church building, the Torah is replaced by the Gospel, which does not abolish the Scriptures, but interprets them and indeed fulfills them. I think that's from St Matthew's Gospel. So we have these, these basic elements from, from Christian worship um, which are developed. So the, the Mass is at the centre of Christian worship. There's a sacrament. Uh, and the proclamation of, of God's holy word. And facing east, it's a very important aspect um, as well. Now, it's interesting when we're talking about buildings that there was some further development which had taken place in Christian buildings. And this, the notion of turning east, of praying towards the east, was an early tradition in the context of the Eucharistic liturgy of the Holy Mass. And Ratzinger says that it's the fundamental expression of the Christian synthesis of the cosmos, universe of history, and being rooted in these mysteries of salvation, um, where we go forward to meet the Lord who is to come again. Um, now, Ratzinger explains that while the Byzantine churches by and large kept the traditional structures. A different arrangement in Rome developed. Um, the bishop's chair was moved to the centre of the apse and um, the altar to the nave, which is basically the case in the, this is the Latrim Basilica, this is John the Latrim, the referred to the cathedra, that's the Pope's the cathedral actually and further up is the is the altar um, of course in the middle ages there would be further developments and, and changes um, and this appears to be the case here in this church and as the Mary Majors in Rome as well well into the ninth century um, and St. Peter's Basilica, this is uh, like a drawing of all St. Peter's. I showed you an, an earlier print, actually. It's a more recent reconstruction. 
in St. Peter's. This is, I think this might come from Wikipedia, but it's very good graphics, whoever's drawn, drawn them. And the altar in St. Peter's was moved nearer to the bishop's chair. This was during the pontificate of Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604. His name crops up, doesn't it, quite a few times in our discussions and our talks on the literature. And the reason why, why the chair was moved was probably because the Pope wanted to stand as near as possible to the tomb of the princely apostle St. Peter. And this particular arrangement was uh, copied in many of the other what we call the stational churches in Rome. Um, the altars are above the tombs of the martyrs and are very ancient. They identify the sacrifice of the altar of Christ of Calvary with the sacrifices made by the martyrs. Um, and actually, um, you know, there was an old Zonero that, that, that grew up that, that people thought, oh, face mass facing the people. And this is not a polemic statement or anything. This is just actually a matter of historical facts based, of course, on theology. That um, when, in, like in St. Peter's in Rome, they have it there, the altar, with the chair behind. Um, in, in St. Peter's in Rome, the, the priest, the Pope, didn't face the people. He was facing towards the east. But it was the way that the church had been built in such a way that it was possible to orientate it towards the east. That's what experts say. And obviously where the martyrs had been buried, um, they had to obviously build in accordance with, with the, the tomb of the martyrs. So we had still, even then, the, the, the orientation towards the east. And he said, unfortunately, Francis says that the alleged model of, of, of versus problem sort of, of of grew up, and that was actually also an idea prevalent in some circles um, in the liturgical movement before the Second Vatican Council. But uh, Ratzinger argued, you know, for a return to ad orientum where possible. Um, well. I think we'll leave it there, my dear people, uh, for this week. And we'll go on with our examination of the theology of the literature according to Joseph Ratzinger, Pope the 16th, starting with sort of a look at the development of the veneration of the Blessed Sacrament. Let us conclude with a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now of a shadow, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.